Welcome into Locked On Knicks. If after three years I sound a little bit better, it's because I finally bought a mic, so that's great. Um, it, it's me and Alex Wolf, as always, and we have Tom Piccolo on of uh, Knicks Film School and B-Ball Index fame, and we are talking Mitchell Robinson. Yeah, and we're talking about a little bit of everything with Mitch, uh, the season that was, the season that will be, whether Mitch can control his fouling, uh, whether Mitch can you know, realize his full potential as a defender, and whether Mitch should be trying to add a jump shot or not, amongst many, many other things. So check that out next on Locked On Knicks with Tom Piccolo. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Knox foul from behind. Count what he does is contagious. Oh, Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane to Trio. Becomes infectious. You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. I'm Gavin Shaw. Across the river is Alex Wolf. And recording with him for the first time today, Tom Piccolo. Joins the podcast. Tom writes for B-Ball Index and Knicks Film School covering the Knicks in both spots. Tom, we so appreciate you coming on, and we're very excited to talk Mitchell Robinson with you. Gavin, Alex, thanks for having me on again, guys. I really do appreciate it. Yep. <laughs> for the second time ever. Uh, no more. And uh, we are going to get started right off the bat um, with Mitch's stats from last season and then his stats uh, post-All-Star break. Seven points, six rebounds, two and a half blocks per game. One steal, 10 points, nine rebounds, three blocks, and a steal post-All-Star break. We got a whole lot of time, and, and Tom, I, I would say, essentially cemented himself at such a young age as a second-round pick as, I would say, definitively the best shot blocker in basketball. Yeah, and just hearing you read through those numbers, like I was thinking they really don't quite do him justice, even to, to show the, the value and the impact that he had on the floor. And a lot of it does have to do with his rim protection with his defense in general, but specifically with his rim protection. I mean, he was just a monster defending the paint all year, which is, it's just not something that you, you necessarily expect from a second round draft pick who, you know, didn't have a ton of experience, didn't even play at the collegiate level the year before. Um, so, so, you know, us fans, we had no idea what to expect and he comes out and just, he really locks down the paint and, uh, yeah, like it really projects well to, to his value going forward, too. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think you can make a case that he was already one of the best shot blockers in the league this past year. I mean, his his numbers certainly bared out. And, you know, I, I think that the consistency, Tom, and I know that, you know, when we talked about this a little bit ahead of time, you know, consistency for him is going to be pretty key as far as being able to stay on the floor, you know, limiting his fouls. Uh, and I think at least that he showed some improvement in that area uh, throughout the year. And I thought that he had a really quick learning curve on pretty much everything, especially once DeAndre Jordan came into the fold. Uh, not to give him too much credit is now a, a Brooklyn net. But, uh, you know, when he came in, he was kind of the mentor that Ennis Cantor never was for Mitch. And, you know, DeAndre plays such a similar style to what you would hope to see Mitch play in the future. Although hopefully, you know, you would think that Mitch would be like a super version of what DeAndre was. But I, I thought that really in that second half of the year, he really wrangled in that, that uh, you know, those fouling tendencies a lot, at least to my eye. 
No, I think he did. I think you guys are, are both, it sounds like, pretty bullish on on him curtailing his his foul trouble from from this past season going forward. And and I'm hoping you're right. I'm I I'm wondering how many minutes per game we should allot for Mitch Rob going forward. But I mean, we, we could talk about that in a little bit. I will say, like th- this past year, his he got better in so many areas. Like we watched it throughout the season. It was obviously blocking shots, but it was also his defensive rebounding. I wrote about this a little last year. Um, he started the season as one of the worst defensive rebounders among centers in the entire league. In fact, the only two centers who were worse than him before the All-Star break were the Lopez twins. And then after the All-Star break, he nearly doubled his defensive rebounding percentage. And you could just tell he was his pursuit of the ball was so much more aggressive. He stopped sort of jumping for blocks that he was never going to get. And he, instead, he was getting himself in better position for those rebounds. So that was the kind of, that was one of the most encouraging signs I saw from him last year. And I, I just I, I guess the one element of his defense we haven't covered so far was just his ability to guard out on the perimeter. And, and to me, I mean, obviously the shot blocking is is always going to be the thing that stands out. And you, you look at his block rate, and he literally was I mean statistically in in a relatively small sample size the best shot blocking season ever in, in that stat um, outside of Manute Bowl which is, is just astounding. But what I was so impressed by was that he he had that, and he was still able to defend on the perimeter. Like year after year after year, we see Rudy Gobert get played off the floor in the postseason. We, we just see James Harden or Russell Westbrook or whoever absolutely torch him on switches. And I, I just I can't imagine that happening with Robinson. He, he's so agile. And uh, according to everything we've heard from David Fisdale and just listening to Mitch talk about defense, he, he really – understands NBA offenses at a high level and he knows how to recognize tendencies. He, he would occasionally make rookie mistakes, but it was very hard to bait him. And you combine that with his ability to play off guys and still contest or either or block threes. And, and just so many different times last year, guys would just have this absolute look of shock on their face when he would come from the free throw line and get to a three point shot that simply no one else in the NBA would be able to get to. And, and Players would try him again and again and again, and it would almost always end badly for them. So that that was just really encouraging for me. Um, I, I just wanted to quickly touch on uh, because it's it's a segment here at this point. Um, Mitch's best games from last season. That's right. We, we've done one for everyone else, but Mitch is a little extra special, so we're doing two. Uh, February twenty sixth against Orlando, seventeen points, fourteen rebounds, six blocks, three steals, six and nine from the field. Just an insane overall stat line. And then March 28th against the Raptors, 19-21 on two on eight of 12 shooting. Uh, I'll throw it out to you guys. Did, did, did I miss anything, or, or were those two sort of the two definitive games of the year for Mitchell Robinson? Gavin, I have a honorable mention game sure. that maybe statistically isn't the most beautiful game of all time, but Mitch back in November, way early in the season, before we really had a, a true glimpse of what he would become yet, uh, and honestly, this kind of was one of the first glimpses of what he might become. He had a 4.4 rebound, nine block game against the Magic on November 18th that, that stood out to me, not only because he set the Knicks rookie record for blocks in a game, but because he broke Knicks Voldemort's uh, record, the tall blonde, he who must not be named, uh, broke his record for most blocks in a single game by a rookie and actually came... I mean, not super close because all those block records are owned by Manute Bowl, but 
he had nine. Manupol's uh, rookie record for most blocks in a single game was 15. So Jesus. pretty damn close to greatness there. Um, <laughs> you know, I guess really, I mean, not that close. It's it's like almost <laughs> it's over 33 percent more. But, you know, regardless, you know what I'm saying? Like um, or over 50 percent more, I should say. But uh yeah, so I, I would say that was one that stood out to me just from a sentimental perspective, if nothing else. Yeah, that one, that was impressive just because it was so early on. And it, it happened in a game that just was such a blowout from start to finish against this Magic team that we, we didn't really think it any business blowing us out at that point in the season. Like, the fact that that Robinson just, like, stayed with it the entire time and just put in that effort the entire time he was on the floor, didn't get discouraged. That was that was definitely encouraging. All right, so I want to take a quick break, come back, and talk about where Mitch could potentially get better next season. So that next on Locked on Knicks. Welcome back into Locked on Knicks. I am Alex Wolf, joined by Gavin Shaw and Tom Piccolo, our very special guest today. Uh, pronounced like Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z that we always confirm right before the beginning of the show. Tom, <laughs> do you get that a lot? I, I really do. Yeah. Like yeah. you can always tell kind of people who get excited about my name. It's either because of Brian Piccolo from, from Brian's song. Usually that's an older demographic or, uh, or Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z, the green guy from Namek. So yeah, I, I get one of the two. See, the fact that you knew that much about it tells me you actually know the show too, which is impressive. <laughs> Not a lot of flute player playing enthusiasts though. Yeah, I I had no clue what that was the first. Oh yeah, that's true. The piccolo, the little tiny flute. That's true. Oh, you don't um, know Brian's song. That's a that's a classic, real story about a, a Chicago Bears running back who, uh, who got sick. Um, it, it's like one of the first movies I cried during. So if you if you want to have a, a good man cry, go rent Brian's song. Well, maybe I'll check that out. That's a good wreck. All right. Anyway, to get back into Mitchell Robinson, Tom, we were talking a little bit pre-show about. You know, there's been a lot made of the fact that, you know, Mitch has been seen in practice a lot, you know, like during his workouts, you know, his, his individual workouts and whatnot, taking jump shots and trying to develop a three point shot, which has been such an important, um, important tool for bigs lately in the NBA, but not necessarily a necessity. Like there are definitely successful bigs, particularly centers in the NBA that don't rely at all on a jump shot. Um you know, like like Mitch did last year, uh, just kind of in a more consistent way. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about that. Like, do you think that it's something he needs to add? Do you think that it's something that he should be spending time on versus, you know, just perfecting what he's already good at? I, I'm kind of just curious your opinions on that. I mean, I, yeah, I have been reading these articles where where I'll read like, you know, Robinson shot threes in high school and, and then I'll watch videos of him shooting around like in practice and the stroke looks fine. I, but frankly, I really don't care about him extending the range on his jump shot, especially at this point in his career. Like it just shouldn't be a priority for him at this point. He, he shot only 60% from the free throw line and he, he really didn't get there very much. Like I would rather see him try and get to the free throw line and, and make those. I just don't think it's, it's going to be important for his for his value to this team. Like think about all the all the centers in the league who are elite rim rollers who dive to the who dive to the rim and, and finish all the oops and lobs. How many of those guys also are able to to pop? Like it's just it's not an archetype that really exists, and I I just don't see it being like a very realistic expectation, especially in year two 
for a guy like Mitchell Robinson. I, I think what he should do offensively is continue to get better at what he's already good at and, and sort of work to fill. There, there are other holes in his game that need to be filled before worrying about, uh, you know, a 15 plus foot jumper. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, he, he was 90% at the rim last year. And I, I guess the question is like, what would be the utility of him having a jumper? And my initial thought on that, Tom, I, I kind of want to hear what you think about this would be like, if he developed an off the dribble game, because then you can kind of leverage that. And I, I mean, obviously the archetype for like that type of player in the NBA is Anthony Davis. And to me, like, I, I just, I don't know if he's ever going to be that guy. Like the stat was when he was in high school, he took 153s, hit 38% of them. But I just, I don't see it being feasible. Like maybe like 10 years into his career when his athleticism drops off a little bit, but I, I'm in, I'm in total agreement with you. I just, I don't see the utility of it at, at this point in his NBA life. And Anthony Davis is just otherworldly skilled. And, right. you know, he had that from when he was at Kentucky, right? Like, that's kind of an innate thing of his. I think if we're going in with expectations of like Anthony Davis level skill for Mitch, we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up for disappointment. He's, he's such a great player at, at what he's already good at that. Um, yeah. Taking the focus away and, and having him pop. I just see it's such a, like a crutch for a lot of bigs. You see, you see bigs who used to be such elite rim runners early on, just relying on the, on the pop. And, uh, at this point in Mitch's career, when he's such a great athlete, I just don't think that would be the most valuable thing for him to do. I think other things he, he should be looking to do is maybe the ability to put the ball on the floor and even like do a one dribble move to look for to score or to to find open teammates off a short roll. Like he he only threw about thirty. I, I had the assist here. Thirty seven assists all season. Um, I watched them all. Just yesterday, I, I just wanted to see if like he had any kind of passing vision, and really only one assist took like any kind of skill or vision. The rest of them were all just dribble handoffs or swinging around the key, and someone made a move. So I'd be looking more at, at passing and a little bit of ball handling before I start worrying about taking jumpers off the dribble. Yeah, and I, well, I think to get back to like Gavin's point too about the. Uh, you know, the Anthony Davis comp, the thing that's like often forgotten about Anthony Davis is that for like the greater part of his high school years and stuff, he was like a ball handler. He was like a point guard. Uh, and then he was a super, super late bloomer and went from being like six feet tall to being like, you know, the six foot 10, six foot 11 guy. He is now literally in the course of like a year and a half uh, going towards the end of his high school career. So, you know, I, I think that's always important to keep in mind, you know, with Anthony Davis versus anybody else with his ball handling is that, you know, he grew up being a ball handler, whereas Mitchell Robinson, I think, grew up being a big. And, I, you know, as someone uh, who among normal humans is considered a big myself, I know that I have never once really focused on dribbling in my life. And, you know, I, it, just because it's it's more ingrained in me to, like, you know, be big out there you know what i mean just get rebounds and and you know play defense and stuff like that and it's it's not really something you think about obviously nba athletes are totally different but i think it would the difficulty curve of trying to teach mitch anything close to what anthony davis has would be honestly a lot harder than even i think developing him a pick and pop jump shot that said though i'm kind of i'm in agreement with you tom like i think you know, going back to deandre jordan who i already mentioned you know if you want to look at a guy who could be a great 
you know, role model for Mitch last season's DeAndre Jordan was a surprisingly really, really good passer out of the high post. Um, and if Mitch can look at that and if he can, I, I really think genuinely that Mitch's basketball IQ is, is pretty through the roof. Uh, and that's why he's so quick to learn things. I think if he could really, you know, put himself towards learning how to, you know, dish out of the high post like that a little bit, uh, a little bit from time to time to like cutters and stuff. That would be a really good skill for him to develop and could actually start opening up the inside for him a little more if, you know, teams started playing him out to there, even just for the passing threat, then he could, you know, hand it off to someone behind him, run a quick little pick again and, and get inside a little quicker, something like that. There's a lot of options that would become available to him if if he was able to develop a game like that. Yeah, so we've, yeah. we've kind of we've touched on Mitch, I, I guess, in terms of how he can inherently improve next year. Tom, what I was sort of interested in hearing from you is how you feel the Knicks did building a team that's conducive to his success. Because I guess what, what's sort of inherently great about Mitchell Robinson and the archetype of player that he is, is that he can fit into any team in any system. Like in the NBA in, in 2019, like if you a great shot blocker and a great rim roller, you're, you're going to have utility on every single team in the NBA. But do you think the Knicks um, did a good enough job of maximizing that by adding the appropriate amount of shooting around him? Or do you think someone like Julius Randle could potentially be a hindrance to how Mitch is, is going to play and is going to succeed? Well, I'm expecting Mitch to still actually struggle with with foul trouble coming into the season, uh, particularly early on. Um, I, I think that there's going to be a need for these bigs in a lot of cases. I'm curious where you guys would put the over under on on Mitch's minutes this upcoming season, but I'm I'm not expecting more than like 22 to 24 per game, and that that may sound low, but I mean that that'll be up from 16 last year. Um, I don't know. I, I hope it is more, but you know, if he's if he's able to stay on the floor, then it'll be a different story. But as far as how the team was kind of built around him, it'd be nice if, if there was a little more shooting. Uh, you know, given Frank Nilakina's success over the summer, we'll see if he's able to earn himself some minutes and what his shot looks like. But then you have guys like you know Dennis Smith Jr., um, R.J. Barrett's a, a very much an unknown. Kevin Knox, it can be a nice, uh, you know, spot-up shooter, but does he really space the floor? I'm not sure about that. Yeah, there's just a lot of question marks, and uh, it, it definitely makes it a little more congested having having guys like Julius Randle and Taj Gibson and Bobby potentially Bobby Portis, um, I don't, you know, in there to, to clog the lane while Mitch is rolling. Um, he would definitely benefit from a little more space, but I don't know. We'll we'll see. Fizdale has such a, a tough task ahead of him, balancing minutes. I, I'm really curious to see how that all goes down. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting for sure. I mean, I think um, I think to your point, like I, I do think that they brought in Randall and Portis with the assumption that the growth that they've shown on their three-point shot will be able to continue, um, and particularly Randall, obviously, because he's he was kind of their prize free agent acquisition. He famously shot, I believe it was like, a little over 34% from three last year on, on pretty decent volume. Uh, so they're going to hope that that improves. Obviously I, he's, you want to talk about a guy who's been working on his dribble and stuff. Randall has certainly been doing that this summer from what it looks like taking step back threes and all this other stuff that you wouldn't normally see from a power forward. Um, but I think you're right, Tom, that, you know, the spacing is going to be, 
interesting with Mitch out there. I I would argue I maybe expect him to play a little more minutes than you think. I, I think I would hopefully think he would be in the 25 to 28 range. Not that that's a huge jump from 22 to 24, uh, but I, I think that they're going to want him out there for 25 to 28 minutes. The, the thing that kind of, I guess, worries me a little bit is that there isn't another player on this team that can even come close to replicating what Mitch does uh, on defense, especially, um, but also as a lob threat and everything else like that, too. I mean, he's he's one of a kind on this roster. There's not they don't have a backup that can step in there and soak up the, you know, all the defensive possessions that Mitch can just with his, you know, his, his already mentioned interior defending ability, his ability to switch out onto the perimeter with no issues. I mean, he's. Uh, like truly, truly a uh, one of a kind defensive player, and e- the Knicks don't even really have anybody that can even just provide the interior defense anymore, which they used to last year sort of have with Luke Cornett. Uh, he could provide a little bit of a you know a crude imitation of you know Mitch style interior defense at least to you know keep guys honest in the paint. So I, I that's why I kind of think. If he could stay out of foul trouble, the Knicks are going to want to play Mitch quite a bit, uh, even with all the congestion on the roster, because there's really just nobody else on the team that can offer what he can. Yeah, and I, I almost don't even want to mention this because I feel like I, I don't want to put it out there in, in, in the universe, uh, for, for lack of a better way to phrase it. But I, I'm worried like with him having a higher workload throughout the year, just him staying healthy because he is like so lean and he's always jumping and I'm still scarred from the whole Gordon Hayward thing like I, I just I kind of want to just put him in, in bubble wrap when he plays almost <laughs> I don't I don't know but what, what do you what do you sort of think of all that Tom and how they kind of budget I guess what Brit, Mitch can bring to the table with not overexerting him and simultaneously um, not letting him get into foul trouble too early in a game well Alex is right on that there really is no one else on the roster to, to replicate what Mitch does defensively last year there was even DeAndre Jordan for part of the season to do that in addition to Luke Cornett. This year, um, there's there's Bobby Portis as a backup center, who is actually, I was looking up the stats, he's one of the worst rim-protecting bigs in the league last season, and then Julius Randle was right behind him. So those are those are not great defensive options. I, I'm sure that they'll both get plenty of run. Randle mostly at the four, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him in some small ball five lineups too. So... Um, yeah, I also expect the defense to be pretty bad in those situations, but um, I'm, I, I still expect Fisdale to play them, I guess is what I'm thinking. You know, there's been a lot of talk about how much Fisdale actually values defense versus, you know, what he says in postgame pressers, but uh, I guess he'll have to put his money where his mouth is. Um, I guess I'm pretty skeptical that, that Mitchell will be able to stay out of foul trouble long enough to play up closer to 28 minutes per game. But I, I hope you're right. I, I'd, I'd rather be wrong on this one. Um, but, yeah, I guess we'll just see. All right, uh, Alex, unless you have anything to add, I think we can wrap this up and finish up with some rapid-fire questions on Mitchell Robinson and maybe maybe get into a little bit of, of long-term projections on him and what, what his ceiling is ultimately. Yeah, I'm into it. Let's take our second break, and we will come right back and finish our discussion of Mitchell Robinson's season and touch more on the season to come ahead next on locked on Knicks. hey are you in the new york area and looking to promote your business to a young predominantly male demographic 
then Locked On Knicks is the podcast for you. 80% of our listeners fall between the ages of 18 and 44, and 98% of those listeners are male. As the top Knicks podcast on the market, we offer a unique opportunity to engage with basketball fans in the city. If interested in an ad spot or live read, email LockedOnKnicks at gmail.com for more information on pricing and availability. Our rates are very affordable compared to radio and offer a chance to reach an audience on an ever-growing platform. Third and final segment, Locked on Knicks. Uh, let's get into it. Um, some rapid-fire Mitchell Robinson questions for Tom Piccolo. Um, Tom, would you say Mitchell Robinson is the best second-round pick in the NBA draft since Nikola Jokic in 2014? The other uh, contenders I could come up with were uh, Monte Morris, uh, Montrez Harrell, and uh, Josh Richardson. I think if you're talking about who you'd rather have on your team next season, you'd probably go Harrell at that point. He was pretty spectacular last year. But, I mean, in terms of projected value going forward, there's no question to me that, that Mitch Robb is the answer there. Uh, I mean, and Josh Richardson, he, he will probably be pretty solid in Philly too. I think his role will be more conducive than, he, than it was in Miami where he was kind of like a, a lead guy where he really had no business being that. Um, so, so those are two pretty... That's good competition for Mitch, but, I, you know, it's a Knicks podcast. What am I going to say? Of course he's the best second-rounder. Okay, That's the right answer. Yeah, I, I would probably – I mean, I, I'm kind of the same opinion. I think long-term he definitely is. I, I would probably say for sure, though, Harrell right now definitely is. I mean, Harrell is really freaking good. I think he's – I think that's actually one of the more – I okay, I'll say this much. I think in general NBA circles, I think Mitch's greatness last year was a little bit – like underappreciated, but I would also say in general NBA circles, Montres Harrell, like in general, is underappreciated. Like I think he's really, really good. Um, I, I think both those players, I mean, are a little bit overlooked. I, you know, Harrell obviously had a little bit of a little bit of six man of the year buzz last year and stuff like that, but um, I, I think he's easily the best backup big in the league and could probably start on two-thirds of the teams in the league as well, without much issue at all. Yeah, Harrell plays with, with a lot of force and power that I hope Mitch can kind of acquire as he gains muscle um, and as he matures. But at this point, like Robinson, he's too skinny to, to really play like that. But, I mean, that, that kind of reckless abandon that Harrell plays with, I, I hope Mitch Rob can, can get to that level. All right. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah, ne next one I was going to throw out there um, – can Mitchell Robinson make an all-defensive team next season? And, and what's so interesting about that to me is, is I think by the end of next year, if he can develop a little bit in terms of not fouling, like I think he'll be able to make like a pretty concrete case that he's one of the best 10 defenders in the NBA. Uh, the issue there is the existence of Joel Embiid and Rudy Gobert. So, so what do you think about that one, Tom? Yeah, I don't want to get too much into semantics, but is, is all NBA – all defense still like very position oriented. Is it like just two centers? Yeah, it, it is. I wonder if like maybe if he plays next to other like with some minutes with Taj Gibson, you could like make a stretch argument for him as a power forward. But yeah, that that that's sort of the the whole issue there. Maybe, maybe the better question is, do you think he'll belong in the conversation as one of the ten best defenders in in basketball next season? I think. I think maybe in, in year three or year four, that's a very realistic expectation. Um, I'd say 
I, I'm just, I just try and keep my expectations a little tempered. I, I'd rather be surprised in a good way than, than disappointed. So I, I'm not just based on what we saw last year and the number of minutes he was able to play and the foul trouble he had. I just, I projected a little, a little more uh, mildly going forward. Right. Like I don't want to just expect him to, to have that same level of exceeding expectations that we had last year into this year. Does that, if that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I, I would probably say that I think he, he, could be one of the top 10 best defenders in the league next year. And I think that if he plays at the peak level that we saw him play last year, you could definitely make that case. But it's just going to be whether he can keep that consistency and be on the floor enough to truly be considered one of the 10 best defenders in the NBA. I think it's everything seems to all come back to the fouls for Mitch. That's just like the number one factor for him. As long as he can keep that reeled in. I, I think the sky's the limit for him as far as how he's going to be viewed league wide as one of the you know better defenders in the league. I agree, um, with that. and I think I think it's going to matter how the Knicks defense shakes out overall and what Fizdale ends up valuing this season. So if if we're getting a lot of minutes with Kevin Knox at the four, right, and R.J. Barrett playing the three, like that's not going to be a lineup that's that's going to be able to stop opposing wings, right? Like we we have realistic expectations of, of the other players on the roster and how many of them are plus defenders. It's, it's Alfred Payton and, you know, Taj Gibson when he's out there, but it's not, and, and when he's out there. Yeah. So there's just, it's not a roster, you know, that's really stacked with a lot of defensive talent. So, you know, if, if Mitchell Robinson can anchor this defense and, and make it, you know, a, a passable unit, then that definitely says a lot and puts him in that conversation. Yeah, to, to that point, I, I would just just to test it out as a theory, I would be intrigued to see how lineups with Frank and Mitch would do defensively. Because as, as you noted, I mean, there, there's really there's no scenario where the other three guys um, on the floor aren't like bottom 10 or so defenders at their position or like maybe that's a little harsh, but somewhere in that range, because it's not just like below average, like most of this Knicks roster are like but due to a combination of youth with guys like Knox and RJ and just ineptitude with some of the free agent signings, like they're, they're going to be really bottom of the barrel. Like I wonder, like assuming Frank takes another step forward and Mitch takes another step forward, could you build a league average defense out of two guys? If they're at arguably two of the more important spots on the floor. And I, I don't know. It, it's that's, that's pretty, that's kind of an intriguing conversation to me. I mean, if I may interject there, like, you know, there was, there was already some, evidence of that last year that frank and mitch is a great combo and actually it's frank mitch and dotson was like one of the best three-man units that the knicks put out there is very small sample size because things never seem to quite line up between them with the dnps injuries you know mitch foul trouble you know there was that one stretch like before his breakout where mitch wasn't getting a ton of burn because he was you know, they, they were considering him to be too foul prone and all that, that they weren't even really playing him that much. And, uh, you know, Frank obviously was injured half the season. But what time we did get to see with Frank, Mitch and Dotson out there was pretty damn impressive. And they put up really good numbers and good, you know, plus minuses and on offs and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, I, I think there's already some evidence to suggest that if Frank actually does take this FIBA leap, and, you know, Mitch can start showing some consistency. They could actually be, you know, the anchors of a good defense here. Yeah, there are definitely some lineups 
that Fisdale could run out there that would be plus defensively. I'm thinking like Alfred Payton, Dotson, Frank, Marcus Morris, Mitch Robinson. Like that's a solid five. Um, and I'd love to see it, but like I said, it, it totally comes down to what, what Fisdale is going to be valuing. You know, last year he was so into, uh, driving into the paint, creating offense. Like that's why he loved Moutier, right? It was his ability to get into the teeth of the defense and sometimes create for others kind of, but <laughs> so, yeah, it totally depends on, on what Fisdale is looking for and, and how he, how he runs his rotations. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, ultimately for me, because I'm, I mean, I don't have high expectations for this team in terms of winning. It, it sort of comes down to, like, who do you put on the floor that's most conducive for the young guys' development? Is that playing young guys with other young guys? Is it playing young guys with vets? Is it playing the best possible defensive lineup? Is it playing the most possible shooting? And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see um, how Fisdale sort of um, proportions all of that and spreads it out. Uh, Tom, I, I would say most important question we've thrown your way so far. Can you help us settle the Mitchell Robinson nickname debate? I know Alex has, and Alex, if you want to go first, feel free. I know Alex has very strong feelings about this, but I, I was wondering if, if you had some contenders to throw out there. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to let Tom go first because then I can tell him if he's right or wrong. Cause there's okay. only one right answer. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I know that like block nest monster is like a, is a very popular one. Um, I don't, it's a little kitschy for me. Uh, <laughs> I I saw what else did I see? Oh, Mitchell Robinson was another one I saw going around. I, I don't know. I'm I'm curious because it seems like you guys have very strong opinions on this. So um, I, I want to hear your cases here. Okay, my my answer is Blockness Monster. I don't care how kitschy it is. Okay, <laughs> it's awesome. And actually, the main reason that I, I stand so hard for this this nickname is that one of my colleagues, my brilliant colleague at Posting and Toasting, uh, Jonathan Shulman, thought of that nickname in a recap. And it is now totally blown up. And I'm very proud of him. And so I pump that nickname up all the time because they put that that was the first one to make it onto his basketball reference page. Maybe still the only one to make it onto his basketball reference page. Um I think the NBA picked it up at one point or something. And also uh, the Knicks literally just used it in a graphic themselves the other day. They actually put like that as uh, Mitch's nickname. So that was pretty dope. So that's my definitive choice. But well, look, I'm, I didn't come on this podcast to try and make enemies here. So, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm extremely biased, too. So, I mean, I can I can hear other options, but I will not accept any other options personally. Does Shulman get like residuals on that? Like, can, I, I feel like if they start selling merchandise, like he he needs to get paid, right? Like, I wonder. Do you, do you think I'd be interested to see if Mitch has trademarked it at this point? Um, I just looked. I actually, about- okay, I will say I don't think Mitch likes it. Strangely enough. Oh, um, does he have a preference? I don't know. I don't know if he has a preference for a nickname. Uh, I mean, obviously he likes um he likes twenty three Savage. Like that's yeah. his uh that's his Twitter handle. And he changed his number to 23 this year. So clearly he wants to roll with that. Like that's I, his. I don't think it's going to stick. I really do. I don't think so either. That's like a self-proclaimed nickname. And yeah. those never work. It's like when Kevin Durant tried to call himself the servant. That was it's just. <laughs> it doesn't work, man. Um, but uh, I, I will say I do remember just a small anecdote that kind of sucks for me. But whatever. Screw it. Um, I put out a post. um of uh what's the photo the surgeon's photograph or whatever of the Loch Ness monster um the like really famous like grainy black and white one that was oh, figured yeah. out to just be a, a little kid's toy in like a kiddie pool um 
but I put that out at one point last year and I tagged Mitch in it and I did like a like an enhanced image thing and then like you zoom in and it was like Mitch coming out of the water like doing his extendo block and uh and Mitch untagged himself from that it might have just been because he was tired of getting notifications on his phone or something because he doesn't have them set to be silent uh or he might have just hated it I have never been able to confirm or deny but and you know I, what? He, he may have a social media team too, who's like, "That's not Mitchell Robinson." You know, you you don't know that. Maybe he still likes that. We, that's true. That's true. I don't think Mitch does though. Mitch, because the way that Mitch tweets, I'm pretty sure it's just him. <laughs> <laughs> like his social media, I feel like is still just run by him. I don't think he's got anyone, anyone wrangling him. Maybe he's got someone being like, "Don't tweet any wild shit," because we don't need that right now. But I, I think that generally he runs his own stuff because his posts are pretty funny. They're just very like. They're very like twenty year old dude who's like figuring out how to be an NBA player after coming out of high school, basically. <laughs> All right, uh, Tom, we'll we'll send you out on this one. Um, the NBA, the all time record for blocks in a season is five point six um, by Mark Eaton. Uh, you've made it very clear you, you don't want to be you don't want to be overly bullish. You don't want to be too speculative. So I'm, I'm throwing a question on, on the table that asks you to do all those things. Uh, will Mitchell Robinson ever top 5.6 blocks in a season uh, in his NBA career? Um, you know, I've, been a, I've been a little conservative on this podcast sure. so far. So, I mean, what, what are the, what's at stake here? I, you know, I'm going to say yes. I think, I think he can, uh, I think he can match that. I think he gets 5.6, 5.7. I think that's, I think that's on the table for him. You know, I'm actually going to I'm going to be kind of contrarian here. uh, Strangely enough, I'm going to say I don't think he's ever going to get it because I think what's going to happen with Mitch is what you see. And I've I've even seen some articles written of this effect. Um, I think his block numbers are going to plateau at most at like around four per game if he truly figures out how to be smart and not foul and stuff, because. Once you become a smarter defender in the NBA, you don't necessarily chase the blocks as much anymore. You just look to get good defense on shots and like preserve your longevity on the court. So like if he keeps going after blocks, you know, like he has been, you know, for the the last year, he could probably get to that five point whatever number uh, if he was somehow able to also not accrue a lot of fouls. But given how fouls are called in the NBA today and stuff, I, I really don't know that he could approach that. Uh, just because he'd, he'd foul out before he could get there. So I think, if anything, he'll plateau at around like four per game. Just you know, because of the nature of good, game. That's a good, measured, thoughtful take from you. Um, and I think that's probably that's probably the right call. I, I will say that there's also kind of a cooling effect when a guy is that good of a rim protector that you know opponents tend to not want to shoot in his vicinity. So I think that's kind of coming once he once he kind of get you know solidifies that reputation as a premier elite shot blocker fewer guards are going to want to challenge him at the rim and that's going to lead to fewer block numbers as well so if it's going to happen it's going to have to happen this season right yeah i that's exactly what i was going to say i mean he'll never have less of a reputation than he did last year and i think he's there's certainly about 30 or 40 guys in the nba who he's legitimately spooked already who probably will never want to take a shot when he's on the court again um, yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's 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 this season and like he would have to really sort of like space it out. So it's not like too crazy where he's getting like four, five, six blocks every night. And like if he has too many games where he gets eight or nine, 
then I think it's going to start dissuading people a little too much. I'm, I'm going to lean towards Alex and say he tops out around four and a half. But, Tom, I'm so happy we could kind of uh, pressure you I- I- into going into a big ballsy prediction to finish up this podcast. And before we send you out, I, I just wanted to give you a chance. I know we mentioned uh, B-Ball Index, uh, Nick's Film School, but a- anything you want to plug um, in the next couple of weeks or, or where people can find you on social media? Yeah, I also uh, do a podcast called Talking Knicks. I don't know. Are you guys are you guys Yankees fans at all by chance? We, uh, I am. Alex is not. I'm a so, Mets fan. <laughs> one of my buddies from high school, um, he's kind of blown up over the summer on Twitter. His name is John Boy. Uh, oh, Jim, shit, yeah. Jimmy O'Brien. Yeah, I went to high school with him. And he does Talking Yanks with one of my best friends from high school, Jake Storiali. He was in my, uh, my he was one of my groomsmen for my wedding. So um, I've been doing Talking Knicks, a little spinoff from Talking Yanks. Uh, we've been doing that for a couple of years. So um, yeah, it's, if uh, if it has as much of a rise as Jimmy and Talking Yanks did, then uh, yeah, you might be expecting to hear some stuff from Talking Knicks. But um, yeah, other than that, look out for me on B-Ball Index, Knicks Film School, and uh, really excited for the season to start, guys. Yeah, you and me both, then. You and me both. All right, with that, we will uh, wrap up this edition. You'll, you'll have to have us on, Tom. We're, we're excited to return the favor, talk some Knicks with you, and we will wrap up this edition of Locked on Knicks. Um, really just an incredible uh, list of guests over the next couple of weeks that I, I don't I don't totally want to spoil, but I would, I would stay tuned in to your Locked on Knicks feed.